All right, if you'll join me over in 2 Timothy chapter 2. I was just talking with Trent today. He said, are you still in 2 Timothy tonight? I said, yeah. And we both laughed because it was supposed to be a two-part series. But you know how it goes. <laughs> There's just so much to talk about in God's Word, amen? There's so much that we can learn and glean from. Just as a recap, I want to get right into it. Just as a recap, we spent some time last week talking about verses 14 and 15. As a reminder, when you see that word in your King James Bible that says subverting, the Greek word is catastrophe. So we would translate that into our English word, catastrophic. And we can see what is catastrophic to the hearers. It's the, the middle of that verse that says, that they strive not about words to no profit. I think there's a place for academic discussion and debate. I don't think that place is in the local church. The reason why is because the local church is supposed to do two things. It's supposed to build the body. How do you build the body of Christ? You win people to Christ. We had a person here on Sunday morning who came in, heard the gospel, and believed it. That is building on the body of Christ. That is something we should be doing at every opportunity that we have. They're not a part of the body of Christ subsection Calvary Community Church. There are doctrines that teach that. There are churches that have baptisms that believe in the gospel just like you and me, but they have baptisms into church membership. I don't see that in the Bible. You want to get baptized into church membership? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You're baptized into one body, many members, one body, the head being what? The Presbyterian doctrines? No. <laughs> The head being who? Christ. So we follow him. But there's real damage that can be done when the church becomes lazy on that aspect. And there's a real temptation right now, especially in today's gotcha culture, to be a church that just teaches the faults and other doctrines and kind of just trains people to be inspectors of doctrine without actually doing something with the Christian life. So the first part of the church should be to build the church and then the second function of the church is to edify the body. How do you edify? That word means to build up. Well, you encourage one another. That's what, we do. That's what we're doing here tonight. I was talking to Trent uh, when, we were, when we had a little meeting this afternoon. One of the functions of Wednesday night prayer meeting is to have prayer. And there's sometimes where, you know, this time last week we were halfway through the prayer portion. And we went till about 7-12. I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't want to quell that because I think it's important that we pray together. I'm supposed to build you up with doctrine from the pulpit and then walk alongside you outside of the, the church services, provide my help in any way that I can. If we only become concerned about debate and trying to prove other people wrong, the result here is catastrophic to those who are hearing it. The people that come in and they trust Christ as Savior and then they just become debaters of doctrine... You know what that negates them from being able to do? Well, the likelihood of negating, they're not going to be able to win people to Christ. If we just become concerned with who's right and who's wrong, well, that's all we're going to do. We're going to prove others wrong and prove ourselves right, and the lost stands outside the church and dies every day. We have got to stay sensitive to the real purpose of the church. We've got to build the body by leading people to Christ. That translates into verse 15, which is a transitional verse. He tells Timothy, so that you don't become 
somebody who strives or leads people that strives in words that are catastrophic to the faith, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And I gave you about 10 different ways to study your Bible. I got a lot of feedback on that, so much so that I thought it would be beneficial sometime this year that we go over Bible study methods as an overview. There's many different ways to study the Bible, all profitable, and it's important to recognize here the workman is studying to be approved by God. Why is it important that this is said to Timothy? Because we are not studying our Bibles to be approved by men. That is what happens in verse 14. You strive not about words to no profit. I'm not supposed to go into a Calvinistic church and then when I speak to that audience, destroy their doctrine. I'm supposed to give the gospel. And if that includes some things that go against Calvinistic doctrine, so be it. I still give the gospel. My attitude is not, I'm right, you're wrong. My attitude is, you need a Savior. And I can show you who that Savior is. Lead them to the opportunity to put their trust in Christ. We're in a very interesting time in the church as far as people who are saved. They're becoming real concerned with just being right, so they're approved by men. You know, I'm working on my doctorate right now. I'm working on a dissertation. I'm going to be reviewed by many different people in my field. If they fail me for some reason, they're going to fail me because I do not meet the test of Scripture. There are other places that would fail me because I don't meet the test of a man's interpretation of the Scripture. That's a, it's a big difference. And you'll see a lot of people go forward into these church-led doctrinal movements that are just riding on the coattails of another man's approval. I just sat down with a gentleman this past week. He's from Ohio. His, his family is here. They're, they're traveling. And he, he comes from a Calvinistic background, but it was as if the pastors in these churches, these Reformed churches, were above questioning. Listen, you don't question the pastor because he's right, and if you disagree with him, you're wrong, and you have the problem with, with God's man. That's not how Paul approached doctrine. There was an encouragement for people to be like Bereans. And what was the final source of authority? The word was the final source of authority. There were other checks along the way, like you know, you had elders and you had deacons and all of that. But those men were supposed to be examples of submission to God's word. Make sure you notice that when it says, study to show thyself approved unto God. When you open your Bible... Don't open your Bible in the fact that you want to impress somebody with your doctrine. What does God have for you? Be open to that. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Right away we see the transition between study and work. This is the idea of gaining information and then using that information in real life experience. James calls this a doer. A doer of the work. His work will be, ble- uh, excuse me, his deeds will be blessed. And you're going to be a workman that needeth not to be ashamed because you're rightly dividing the word of truth. I was talking with Marjorie about this. I think it was actually Thursday last week because she was like, I was, I'm really interested in that way to, stu- to study the Bible. And there's, there's great concepts that we can bring in through a whole lens of Scripture, a whole analysis of Scripture that you can apply. For example, you separate Israel and the church. You don't conflate those two things. What ends up happening is if you conflate those two things, you have something called replacement theology. Well, the church is now Israel. 
It's a spiritual thing. You want to make sure you do not make everything an allegory in the Scripture because then you'll go into the book of Revelation and you'll say, those things aren't really going to happen. They were fulfilled in 70 AD when Jerusalem fell. That's dangerous. And that's a major problem. And if you begin to interpret the Scripture that way, you get things like Joel Osteen was mentioned tonight. Prosperity-driven gospel is because there are promises to Israel that are then taken out of context and then put in context for the idea of you to follow the teaching of a man who's not using promises correctly. And that can be very, very dangerous. I would say catastrophic to those who listen. Think about people who have yet to come to faith in Christ. If they're depending on God to operate as some genie that has a code that they have to figure out and they follow this man to figure it out, where's Jesus in that message? He's not there. Think about the believer who now is thinking to strive for their own spiritual maturity out of their own flesh. Where's Jesus in that message? Where's the without me you can do nothing in that message? He's not there. The devil is, he, he is well aware of how he can get people to either stay lost or stay ineffective in their salvation. And it's removing Jesus and replacing it with man or doctrine or whatever it is. And that's the real threat. Then we go to verse 16, another transition, but shun, excuse me, not a transition, an application of what was just taught. If it says, but in verse 16, this is in contrast, study the word, be approved of God so that you're not ashamed, rightly divide it, and avoid this. So here's the negative. Shun profane and vain babblings. I'm sure you've seen this where discussions become heated arguments, and now there's profanity involved, there's uh, ad hominem attacks. You want to study some ad hominem attacks? Go, go listen to early Richard Dawkins debates. And he's, a, oh, the, he's an atheist, and he's got some real personal, that's what an ad hominem attack is, you attack the individual instead of the message. A lot of Calvinists do the same thing. Uh, with, with people who are not reformed in their view. It just becomes tearing down the individual without attacking the teaching that they say. That kind of thing is profane and vain babblings. For they will increase unto more what? Now, that's the first idea that the word ungodliness has been used in this verse, but you can see that the Profane and vain babblings are ungodliness, and if that behavior continues, it will lead into more ungodliness. This is, this is why, you know, when, we're, when, we're, when we have the opportunity to teach or to communicate God's Word in a small group or a Sunday school class or something, you don't use that as an opportunity to beat down another doctrine or beat down another individual. Preach the Word, period. Let it speak for itself. And, and I remember when this was something that was brought up to me in my public speaking class. You have to make sure that you know your audience. You got to know your audience. I would approach going to a mosque. I would approach the preparation and delivery of a message if I had an opportunity to speak in a mosque than I would speaking in a Jewish synagogue. I wouldn't use the same words, wouldn't use the same illustrations. I'd still use the word of God but I would craft it in a way that, my, that the people would be able to understand what I'm saying. Same thing if I'm going to teach in a Sunday school with little kids. 
I'm not going to go into the Sunday school with little kids and just talk and talk and talk and talk for 45 minutes. I've lost them at five minutes. The attention spans are smaller, and that's not an insult. It's a fact. I've got to make sure I have illustrations, object lessons, all sorts of different things. But if the only goal is to elevate self, then you're just going to rant, and you're going to rave against something. You're going to, well, you don't understand my teaching style. Well, you should be, you should be able to change your teaching uh, teaching style, so that you can be understood. Can you imagine if all of a sudden I just got off the podium and started talking real loud as I am now in the corner? You'd be like, is he okay? Is something wrong with our pastor? Yeah, I've forgotten you, my audience. That's how I see a lot of young people right now, except they're doing it on a phone and they're doing it on a social media thing, but they, they, they don't understand their audience. They're not trying to understand their audience. It's just kind of cramming their doctrine down someone else's throat. Then we have an example of this ungodliness, and it's in verse 17. And their word, so the, the theme of this ungodliness, which is striving about words to no profit, their word will eat as doth a canker. Now, you would probably think like a canker sore. How many of y'all have had one of those before? We all have. You know, it's, those are not fun. And if you're, if you're not careful with it, it can get really nasty and get infected, and people have had major issues with that. How do you get rid of, an, of, of a canker sore? Well, you, got, you need ointment on it. Does it go away right away? No, and sometimes you need a little aura gel to get that pain to go away. The comparison here is that's the equivalent of this kind of behavior in the body. I want you to notice something. We're talking about people in the body. Now, we've got two people here who are named. This is the equivalent of you're in class and you had the lowest grade on the test and the teacher says the lowest grade on the test was your score and then your name comes out of their mouth. So everybody knows that was Trent. Excuse me, that was Jesse. I'm sorry. <laughs> He had the lowest score, and you're, you're now put on the spot. These two individuals, Hymenius and Philetus, you're going to see the word that they taught, it met everything from verse 14, skip 15. It was actually the opposite of 15, 16 and 17. It ate like a canker. It was profane and vain babbling, which led to more ungodliness. It was striving about a words to no profit, catastrophic to the hearers. Look at the results, verse 18. Who concerning the truth have erred. So where did the problem start? It started with those two individuals. Hymenius and uh, Philetus, they got together. I don't know what happened. The scripture doesn't say. But they took the truth and they made a wrong turn. Maybe it was a wrong application. They heard someone else give their opinion of it. Whatever it is, it departed from truth. And we know there is no half-truth. This is why when you stand and you take an oath, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, can you tell the truth and omit facts? You can, but it's no longer the truth. It's a half truth. Well, if it's half something, there's another half, right? It doesn't just disappear, okay? Yeah, half of it is a lie. You can omit, and people get away with this stuff all the time. But with these two guys, they erred. And there's a major consequence to their error. Look what it says. Saying that the resurrection 
is past already. What would this be referring to? Well, I think it's referring to the day of the Lord, when he comes back, when the, when, um, when, when the Lord descends back. And they overthrew the faith of some. I want you to, if you're, if you're taking notes, it's good to circle overthrow and subverting. I think that's a good connection to draw. See, Paul, he's a good teacher, the Holy Spirit, the best teacher, obviously. He's not just blah, blah, blah with no example. Subverting to the hearers, here's an example. I think that Hymenius and Philetus will be in heaven with us. There's nothing to indicate they won't. But they have overthrown the faith of some. Does that mean that they're lost now because they went into this error? This is why I started preaching this message. This is why we're in the third week of this study. You cannot take verse 19 out and stand it alone as some type of test for salvation. 19 says, nevertheless, nevertheless what? Why is nevertheless there? Nevertheless is saying, regardless that their faith was overthrown because Hymenius and Philetus taught that the resurrection was already passed, which is catastrophic to these believers, which you, Timothy, should avoid, regardless of what those two individuals did that caused others to walk away from the faith, what does it say? The foundation of God standeth sure. Now we hit the rewind button and we go all the way back to verse 11. It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. Verse 12 is talking about rewards. Verse 13 is very encouraging, and I think the groundwork for the truth in 19. What does 13 say? If we believe not, this sounds like overthrown faith. Whatever the result of Hymenius and Philetus, if it ends up in the, the believer believing not the truths of God, yet he abideth faithful. I would circle, he abideth faithful, and connect it to the foundation of God standeth sure. What is the foundation of God? That's Christ. That's the foundation for the believer. You can see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, which we do have time to look at. So pause for a sec. Hold your spot in 2 Timothy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we have an illustration from Paul about the judgment seat of Christ, what it's going to look like. But there's a statement here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We will start in verse 10. It's important. This is on page 1214. Trent, I don't have any water up here. Could you grab me some water, please? Verse 10 says, According to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed, be warned, how he buildeth on this, on this foundation. That's what the thereupon is referring to. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is what? Jesus Christ. So when Paul is describing himself as a master builder, laying the foundation for the Corinthians, and that foundation is Jesus Christ, what is this an illustration of? Their salvation. Paul, the soul winner, went into the Corinthians, the lost people. They became saved by believing Paul's message, so they laid a foundation. Paul laid that foundation for them. 
Now, what it says, go back to 2 Timothy. Thank you kindly. Go back to 2 Timothy. The foundation of God standeth sure. Aren't you glad that that's not where that verse ends? There's more application to it. Having this seal, what's the seal? Well, we're going to see what it is, but understand, this is the mark that you can know you're saved. Regardless of how you finish your life, you can know before you finish your life that God's foundation stands and that there's a seal, a mark, that is held by him. What is it? Having this seal that they will not miss an opportunity to tithe. Is that what that says? That regardless of their falling away, they won't ever really denounce the faith. That's not what that says either. The Lord knoweth them that are his. Now, I know we talk about Matthew 7 all the time, but Matthew 7, 21 through 23, what is the statement from Jesus to those who claim him to be their Lord? I never knew you. This should cause you to fall back deeper into that pew, have a great sigh of relief. Jesus knows you. That's it. And he's not going to forget. I used to think, I remember when I had this thought, I was in youth group. We prayed for one of the uh, people who were in youth group for their mother who had dementia. She was beginning to forget her daughter's name. And I thought to myself, I seriously had this question. I thought, what if she forgets that she believed? What if she forgets that she put her trust in Jesus Christ? Would that mean that she's not saved? I was about 17 at the time. Legitimate question. Because there's a lot of people who would say the Armenian idea, which is, well, you can freely get in, you can freely leave. But isn't it good to know the seal of God's foundation is not your ability to remember that you believed. Jesus is the one who knows you. You're not excited. We're not excited tonight. We're tired. No, in all seriousness, folks, this should be one of the strongest verses you hold on to for your eternal security. It never was about you and me. It's about Jesus. Amen? And he's the one who shed his blood for us. He's the one who went and led captivity captive. He's the one who rose again from the dead. And because of that, we can know that we are his because he knows us. Even those who were overthrown because they thought a false doctrine from the cankerous teachings of Hymenius and Philetus. Doesn't matter. God knows them. Jesus knows them. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Here's where people say in that verse, see, you have to depart from sin in order to be known by God. Is that what this is saying? See, you're, you're here at Calvary Community Church where we take three weeks to look at six verses. You know what is happening here is there's an application statement, or excuse me, there's, there's an interpretive statement and there's an application of that statement. If you're known by Jesus because the foundation has been laid by God and the seal is you're known of Christ, you should depart from iniquity. Why? Because if you stay in iniquity, you become Hymenius and Philetus. You cause others to have catastrophic results in their faith. Don't do that. There was a meme of Michael Jordan. That's now, it was back, a commercial a long time ago. And I mean, he's sitting there and he's got the, you know, 
colored backdrop like J.C. Penney uh, family photos. And he's, he's sitting looking at the camera, you know, big Michael Jordan. I don't know what the ad was, but he looks at the camera and he goes, stop it. Get some help. That's what is the instruction to the believer that is not walking in righteousness and uprightness. They're walking in their flesh. Stop it. Get some help. If you don't stop it, there's going to be catastrophic effects on others. Have you ever seen what happens to a moldy piece of bread that's right in the middle of everything else? The next two slices, front and back, are just as moldy. And they might have a little bit of mold closer to the end, but you're still not serving that, right? I remember a science project. I was amazed at how fast bread molded. Then I got my own apartment and realized it molds even faster. (laughs) Especially when you don't use the bread. What a wonderful thing. But that's the statement. That's why it says here, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ, if you call yourself a child of God because you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, depart from iniquity. Walk in righteousness. This is why I have to laugh, although in an irritated way when people say we teach a license to sin. No, we don't. And we never say that. Can you do that? Yes, you have the choice to disobey God. You certainly do. Should you? No. I'll say it in Spanish. No. I won't say it in any other language because I don't, I, don't, I don't know. But typically, you'll understand. No, the instruction is to walk in righteousness. Well, how do I do that, pastor? You love. You love not just the individual, but you love Christ. You seek after him. John 15, where it says, without me, you can do nothing, is not just for the 12. You know who also heard that message? Judas. Satan entered into him the, 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 the idea to betray Christ because he's not the Messiah that, or excuse me, he's not the one that's going to bring in the kingdom as Judas had thought. That's the attitude of Satan to deny the reality or power of Christ. What a shame it would be for, his, for God's children to deny the power of Christ that is within them. Verse 20. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but some of wood and of earth, some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself of these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, and meet for the master's use. This is not a verification of eternal life. This is a check of how useful are you to God. You want to be useful? Depart from iniquity. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Rightly divine the word of truth. Don't worry about vain and profane babblings that will just increase unto more ungodliness. Look at Hymenus and Philetius. Look what they have done. Don't be them. Be a vessel that's fit for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. Flee also youthful lust, but follow righteousness, faith, Charity. What's charity? It's not a giving statement at the end of the year. That's love. Follow after that. Peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strifes. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach. Timothy You need to be ready and able to teach, patient, 
Come on, you can't get this? What's the matter with you? That's not the Bible teacher. Shouldn't be. In meekness. Ooh, that's a great word. There's only two people in the Bible that are described as meek. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and Moses. Now, what was unique about the end of Moses' life? He did not get to go into the promised land. Why? He struck the rock. What was the rock the illustration of? Christ. And here's Timothy, a young boy getting ready to take over Paul's ministry to all these churches. What is the instruction? Timothy, you do these things in meekness, strength held and reserved, instructing those that oppose themselves, like maybe Hymenius and uh, Philetus, if God preadventure will give them repentance to acknowledging of the truth. We're not talking about, I don't think we're talking about lost people here. I think we're talking about saved people that are caught up in false doctrine. God, through the word, can give them the opportunity to change their mind, but they need to be taught. They need to be sought after. And that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. You know how easily the devil can get just, it's like a spinning top. All you have to do is just, bink, and that thing will lose everything. That's how easily the devil can sift through you. You find believers like that in the body. You're not looking with that whip of justice, and you're like, oh, I'm going to get them. That's not the point. How about you come alongside them? How about you bear one another's burdens? How about we pray for one another? Amen? This is a great passage. And it's a shame that people say, well, this is only for pastors. Mm-mm. No, this is for everybody. You imagine if everybody in the church had this kind of attitude and sensitivity to false doctrine and the approach. You guys know the little YouTube videos that I make. I get animated on there, but I have said many times, I want this person to come to a change of mind. Because the reality is a lot of these people caught up in this false doctrine, Calvinism stuff, they're believers just like you and me. They've put their faith in Jesus Christ, but they are subverting the hearers. I want that to stop. I don't cause that by punching them in the face on a YouTube video. That, that ain't going to do it. I've reached out to many of these guys that we react to. I don't get any responses, so I go forward in correcting the doctrine. But the idea is in meekness. Be meek. Good study, right? We finished. And now it's like, why not keep going? Yeah, why not? Let's take a break. And we'll keep going. That'd be great. Chapter 3 is just as good. All right, you can close your Bibles. Thanks for being here tonight. I pray that's encouragement to you. I can't tell you how many times I've seen 2 Timothy 2.19 used as a proof text for work salvation. Hopefully you can see where that verse is in the beauty of context. Amen? Aren't you glad you don't open 2 Timothy and there's only chapter 2, verse 19? <laughs> there's a lot of other stuff in between there. And it's all relevant. It's all relevant. You may say, Pastor, how can I know that I have eternal life? How can I know that I'm going to heaven when I die? Let me show you. This hand representing you and me, this block of sin represents sin. I put it on top of my hand because the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God loves us. He hates our sin. It separates us from him. To get to heaven and spend eternity with him, we have to be absolutely sinless. A lot of people think, oh, sinning less. No, no, sinless without any. 
We all fall short. The wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God forever in a literal fire burning hell. There's no amount of good works that could ever save us. Going to church, reading your Bible, praying, giving money, none of those things will save you. They're all good works in the eyes of men, but in the eyes of God, they're filthy rags if we're trying to apply them to our salvation. Somebody has to die. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. This hand represents Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, and just for the sake of the illustration, that's what this hand represents. God in His love sent His only begotten Son to die on the cross to pay for our sins, not to show us what we should do in order to get to heaven. He lived a sinless and perfect life. Fully man, fully God. He went to that cross and had the ability to pay for our sins, and he did it. And the last thing he said on this earth before he died was, it is finished. He was buried and he rose again three days later. That resurrection proving that that payment for sin was accepted. So now you and I can have this fully paid for, past, present, and future. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The foundation of God standeth sure. It's done. Boom, finished. Yes, that's exciting. Because Jesus knows the ones that are his. Who are the ones that are his? All the ones chosen before the foundation of the world. Uh Uh-uh. Those who believe, they receive the free gift of everlasting life. And if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, you should depart from iniquity. Ooh, yes. Be profitable. Don't you want to have someone else come to this exchange too? Don't you want to be able to win somebody to Christ and say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved? And they come to the realization of the truth and put their trust in Jesus Christ? That's the greatest thing you could do in this life. But if you're living in iniquity and in sin and in bondage and all of that, willfully you're choosing to do that, you can't be profitable. You're not fit for the master's use. Think of the cost of our eternal life. That sin that we enjoy, it put our Savior on the cross. We should depart from it. Salvation is free. That Christian life requires walking in our new nature. But you can share this message with anybody when they come to faith in Christ. Isn't that exciting? Don't we have a life full of purpose? Man, I hope you're excited. I know it's 7.30 on a work night. But don't forget who you are and the the wonderful opportunity we have in this little bit of time to serve our Savior. Amen? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity we have to teach your word tonight. For those that may be watching and have put their faith in Jesus, Lord, I pray for them. I pray for their encouragement, their spiritual growth. I now think of those here in the audience. Likely all of us have put our faith in Jesus, Lord, but I pray that we can see the importance of 2 Timothy 11 through the rest of the chapter, excuse me, 2 Timothy 2, 11 through the rest of the chapter there. The illustration of Hymenius and Philetus, the, the damage that they did, how we should not go about doing the same damage. Thank you, Lord, for a man like Paul, how you used him. Thank you for the indwelling Holy Spirit. And we thank you and praise your son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.